Well, if you'd like to take up your Bibles again at Isaiah 41, Fusion the Church Bibles on page 601. And it says this, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets every step? Who gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot? He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who have performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbour and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails, so that it cannot be moved. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. And you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I make the wilderness a pool of water, and dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together. The hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. 
Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know the outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stared at one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my, my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning, that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one among those, there is no counsellor who, when they ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion, their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at those two chapters. But let me mention a couple of things. First of all, there'll be a question time as soon as the sermon finishes. And we usually get a chance for two or three questions, depending on how long I take to answer them. There's a sermon outline in your service sheet, which you can use if it's of use to you. But other than that, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you as we reflect on these passages, you reveal who you are and what you're like and how you bring comfort to your people. We also thank you how your servant Isaiah leaves us beyond doubt that there is no one like you. Um, and we thank you that the comfort this provides your people back in the day when they were scared of the nations and they feared their the exile they were anticipating in Babylon. But we thank you, Lord, that you could show them that they had nothing to fear because you were their protector and their redeemer. Amen. Well, today's passage begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So God is comforting his people. But what do they need comfort from? Well, this passage anticipates a time when the people will be in exile. Babylon will come, take the people from Judah, away from their home and away from their God. On the surface, it will look like Babylon, having got the better of Assyria, is now the superpower. And Judah is a small, insignificant nation that's been caught up in it all. But in reality... It's God who's raised Assyria up to devastate Israel and also to attack Judah. And then after a time, it's God who raises up Babylon to take Judah into exile. Now the reason God has done all this is because Israel forgot their God. Israel worshipped idols instead. 
And Judah followed in their steps and became even more evil than Israel. And so when the people are in exile, they can turn to Isaiah's message where they learn that God will one day comfort his people. Now, we may be inclined to think that God brings comfort to his people because they are oppressed. They've suffered unjustly at the hands of the Babylonians. And now God brings comfort and the promise that he will vindicate his people. But that isn't what's happening here. As verse 2 explains, the people of Judah have suffered because of their sin. But now their iniquity will be pardoned. What they will experience at the end of the exile is nothing less than unmerited forgiveness. And this is the context in which this comfort is given that they will receive. The punishment that they've received for their sins will come to an end and they will receive comfort as they're restored, not because they've atoned for their sin, atoned for their sins, but because God will pardon their sins. But they may be asking the question, does God want to save them? And is God able to save them? Well, in answer to the first question, God does want to save them. That he has told them he will comfort them means he wishes to save them. But the second question, is God able to save them? Well, the people may have already answered that question themselves and said, no. After all, he allowed them to go into exile in the first place. If he was able to save them, he would have prevented the exile from the beginning. But as we've already touched upon, the exile happened, or that the exile happened, doesn't demonstrate a weakness in God. It doesn't betray that history is outside of his control. But rather the exile demonstrates his sovereignty over every nation because he can raise up any nation he likes and use them to punish his people for sins they've committed against him. And then the exile provides God with the opportunity to demonstrate that he is the one who can be trusted. Because who else could bring a people back from exile? And so we see it is God against the Babylonians. In verses 3 to 5 of chapter 40 speak of how God is going to personally intervene as he travels through the wilderness in order to bring his people out of exile. And there's no mountain or valley that can prevent God from doing what he said he will do. Whereas his oppositions, the Babylonians, well, verses 6 to 8 describe them as being like grass. So the people of Judah, Babylon, would seem extremely powerful. 
the idea that they could escape their captives would be unthinkable. But to God, humanity is extremely frail. No sooner does the grass grow, and then in a breath, the grass dies. All it takes is a wind to blow on the grass, and it fades. But in verse 7, we see that the wind or breath that's spoken of belongs to the Lord. It's the breath of God or the Spirit of God, that which brings everything into existence, can and does just as easily end its existence. But it isn't only those that oppose God that are like grass. Those that wish to be saved are also like grass. Powerless to save themselves, they must depend fully upon God. Just as the powers that oppress God's people will not prevail against God, neither can those who wish to be saved save themselves. God has said he'll save his people and his words stand forever in contrast to man that lives but a short time. But God isn't just saving his people for their own sake. He saves them for a purpose. They are to declare the news of redemption to all nations because it's not just for them but for all nations. Now Isaiah has already made a rather compelling case for the fact that God can save, and not just his own people, but it will be made available to the whole world. But Isaiah still has more to say. Isaiah begins to explain in verses 12 to 13 just how distinct God is from his would-be foes. Mankind is unable to explore the extremities of the earth. Something that God does know and does understand comprehensively because he created it and everything. So if God can't understand creation, then how can humanity expect to have measured the spirit of the Lord? How can they say they know the creator if they're still so limited in their understanding of his creation? And then have a look at verses 15 to 17 of chapter 14. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The nations are what the people of Judah fear, but they shouldn't, because from God's perspective, the nations are like a speck of dust that doesn't even register on the most sensitive of scales. Verse 16, God is worthy of our worship. But even if we gathered all the earth's resources together, there wouldn't be a sacrifice worthy of the Lord. We can take this further still. 
if we gathered all the world's resources and they were all used in an attempt to make an appeasement for man's sin, it still would not be enough to atone for it. Once again, redemption has to be God's initiative. Ultimately, Isaiah should be leaving all those who read his message beyond doubt that God alone is able to save. He's the only one to be trusted. He goes on, the nation's idols, well they're no match for God because they are too part of his creation. They're fashioned by people. People who grow weary from wielding the tools they use to make the idol. Whereas God is the creator, he brings everything the nations use to make their idols into existence. At the end of chapter 14, verses, in verse 27 and onwards, we have the questions we began with and asked again, but this time as a statement. Have a look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. First the people say, my way is hidden from the Lord. They seem to think that God has forgotten about them in their suffering. But God, God does know his people. He knows that they're suffering as a result of their sin. He knows that he will save them. But he will do so according to his own timetable. God also knows the good that he's planned for his people. The people have to be patient and they have to trust him. The second statement, they say, my right is disregarded by my God. Here they question whether God is going to show them justice. But far from not knowing and not caring, God does know. He will bring them justice. But before he restores them, they have to endure the exile so that they will turn back to God. As we've been seeing throughout the book of Isaiah, it's only when the people are punished for their sin will they finally leave behind their attempts to form alliances with other nations and then turn back to the maker who deserves their trust. God will save them and they will put their trust in him. And then in chapter 41, we see that God is going to raise up Cyrus to rescue his people. And all the nations, they'll be scared of Cyrus. But God tells Israel, you have nothing to fear. If you try to find someone who can contend against you, you'll not be able to, because God is your help. His people will not want for anything, because God will provide them with water, even though they're in a desert. Then God challenges the idols. He says to them, can you do what I have done? Take yourself back to the context of Isaiah. The exile hasn't happened yet. Babylon 
is still an unknown. But here in chapters 40 and 41, God has told Isaiah what will take place when the exile ends. An exile they're not even in yet. The reason he can do this is because he's sovereign. Because of what he says is what he does. God validates himself by telling the people what will take place before it happens. Then God vindicates his word by causing what he has said will happen to happen. And among the nations, there's no God that can replicate this. No God to predict what will happen and then act to bring their prediction to bear. The nations are not to be feared because the gods they serve are not to be feared because they're powerless. They can do no evil to the people of Israel and they can do no good on behalf of their own people. But the God of Israel can be trusted because his word comes with an authority. God's word is an action. When it's spoken, it's as good as carried out. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the force of your word, that as we read this description of what you're like and how you treat your people and how you engage with the nations, we see that you really are a force to be reckoned with. That there is no one who can compare. And that when you make a promise, it's as good as already kept. We thank you that what you says, what you say will always come to fruition because it's you who brings about your plan and purpose. And so as we reflect in awe of this, we thank you that you have provided us with the salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. And that a promise that was made 2,000 years ago applies to us now, because what you say has the force of an action. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning that there have been opportunities to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been reflecting upon. So, any questions, any comments? Yes, Nathan. Gee, I was just about to say, right, let's wrap it up then, let's move on. <laughs>
Yep. Did everyone hear that? Cool. Yes, Ricky. In 0.125, it's described that I stand up one from the dark and he has a count, which on the first reading might make you think of either Assyria or Babylon. So I understand they are geographically not. Then it does say, from the rise of the serpent, he shall call upon my name. So it sounds odd to think how the foreign nation, for example, call upon uh, the name of God, unless the one from the north is someone else. So I guess the question is shot is who's the one from the north? Yes, interesting. Let me have a look at the commentary and I'll go back to you. Just to check. Yeah, it's so I guess when you get to Daniel, um intro, yeah, so they do so, but at varying degrees, I think. Um, so you find them, and as well, they, there tends to be a inclusiveness, as in they include uh, the God with the other gods. So I'm not sure whether there's ever a full out-and-out acknowledgement of God. Let me check, uh, and I will get back to you all. So on that note, we probably ought to move on, wouldn't we? Yeah.